Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. Have you ever noticed that a lot of movies start with a moment uh, where somebody has a life-changing experience? So it might be um, like a life-altering, life-changing experience. It might be boy meets girl. We'll use the classic example. Someone walks into a cafe. There's this... um, a friendly stranger with a nice smile on their face standing across the cafe and they start talking and then as the movie unfolds, they get to know one another and it turns out that this friendly stranger lives on the other side of the world and because person A is so captivated by the friendly stranger, they end up uh, changing the whole course of their life to move over to this other country and there's no doubt obstacles along the way as the story unfolds as they journey against these obstacles to get what they want, which is a relationship with this person. Uh, but their whole life is altered by the encounter that they have with this person. You see it when people encounter poverty for the first time. Uh, People like, for example, when people went on our trip, our team from Northside to Madagascar last year and encountered such deep poverty. That's a life-altering experience. There are some encounters that we have in life that recalibrate something deep within us uh, that alters the entire course of our life and changes the whole way uh, that we approach life uh, from then on in. What we see in Isaiah in this passage is one of these encounters. This is a life-changing encounter that he has with God. It's one that redirects the entire course of his life. Um, After encountering God in this passage, as, as we see at the end of the passage that Claire read to us, he volunteers to be sent by God himself on a mission, and it's a mission of which he doesn't know the details. <laughs> he just puts up his hand uh, and signs a, bl- a blank check and says, here am I, God, send me, without knowing the details of what that mission is. Uh, such is the encounter with God that has redirected the course of his life, that he would be willing to go anywhere and do any- anything for this God that he has encountered. So, so powerful is the encounter. I feel for us today, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, giving God that kind of unconditional allegiance um, feels a little bit risky, feels a little bit uh, like something that we're not quite sure we would want to do. There aren't too many people in our lives, I don't think, that we would give unconditional allegiance to, that we would sign a blank check for, unless it's somebody that we've had one of these life-altering experiences with, encounters with. Uh, But nonetheless, that's what we see with Isaiah when he truly encounters God as he is. He says, God, I would go anywhere for you. I would do anything for you. God says, who will go for us? And he says, here am I, send me. Not knowing yet what his mission is, which which we find out at the end of the passage, which we will get to um, after that. He's had this recalibrating experience. Um, And for us, as we consider what it looks like to live our lives with God and to send for him to send us where he wants to send us, to be willing to be swept up into his glorious purposes in this world, what kind of encounter does that mean for us to have with God in order to to willingly and voluntarily? let go of the things that we hold on to, to be swept up into his purposes in this world. And we learn some important things from Isaiah uh, for what that looks like for us. So let's unpack this story. I'll give you a bit of the background, uh, who Isaiah was, um, a little bit about him as a person, and then we'll look at a few things that we can draw out of this passage, uh, what it is that made this encounter so life-altering for Isaiah. 
So first up, who was Isaiah? He was a man who lived in Jerusalem, which was the home place of God's people, the Israelites. He was married. He had a couple of kids. Uh, he lived about 800 years before Jesus came on the scene. Um, he was what, they, what is called a prophet in the Old Testament, the, the part of the Bible that's before Jesus arrives on the scene. And he was somebody that God used to speak to his people, to call them back to who he had created them to be. Um, he's an important prophet in the Old Testament of the Bible because he's cited about 20 times in the New Testament. So the writers who write about Jesus and who he was and why he was important and what he means for our lives, the New Testament writers, they refer to Isaiah about 20 times because Isaiah is such an important figure in helping us to understand who Jesus was. Uh, so for as people who are wanting to understand Jesus more and know Jesus more and understand what he means for our lives, Isaiah is such an, uh, an important one to listen to and to understand his message if we're going to understand more about who Jesus is uh, and for his significance for our lives. Um, and today's reading, this encounter that he has with God, this is the turning point for Isaiah in his life. This marks the beginning of his ministry. This marks the beginning of his uh, job as a prophet to speak to God's people, to call them to be all that he has created them to be. This is the turning point. This is the encounter that changed the course of his entire life. And here's what happens. There, we don't know where Isaiah is when he has this vision, but there he is and he, he sees uh, God in his temple, which is his throne room. The, the, the temple in the Old Testament was the place where heaven and earth met, that the temple was where God lived. And within the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies. That was God's throne room, if you like, where the king sat on his throne. And so Isaiah has this vision of God in his temple, the king in his home, the place where heaven and earth met. Um, and he's high and lifted up. Um, and if you notice in this passage, God himself is not described but his surroundings are, the environment around him are described. It's like seeing the effects of the wind, but not the wind itself. Uh, so it's this, what we see is this picture of overwhelming majesty and sovereignty uh, in the throne room of the king. So picture this. If you can picture this like a movie in your mind's eye, you've got the king sitting on, a, on the throne, heaven's throne, the universe's throne, which is the seat of all authority and all power. He's high and exalted. He's so high and exalted that the train of his robe, just the train, fills the entire temple. And now the word train there really is best translated as hem. And if somebody had a hem on their robe, that was a mark of identity for people like priests and kings. And as a king, just the hem of his robe fills the entire temple. So glorious, so majestic is this king, is this God in this vision that Isaiah has. Around him is this picture of constant motion of these angelic beings called seraphs. Um, constant motion at the bidding of this God who is ascending God, who's a God of movement. Constant motion around him. And these angel angelic beings, these seraphs, they're flame-like. They look like flames of fire. And they are so taken up in awe and majesty and wonder um, in being in the presence of God that they're covering their faces and their feet and they're flying. And all they can do is cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Glory being the shining out of who he is. The whole earth is full of his glory. He can't be contained just in a temple. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And in the Hebrew, which is the language that um, Isaiah was originally written in, if something was repeated, that was the way that something was given emphasis. So if, if it was holy, that's really, that's a big deal. Something is holy, which I'll, which I'll describe and define for us in a second. If something is holy, holy, repeated twice, that's, that's real emphasis. If something is repeated three times, that's pretty much unheard of. Holy, holy, holy. It's beyond human comprehension. The only words that Isaiah has in writing out what, what these um, angelic beings are saying is to repeat holy. Holy three times, holy, holy, holy. So much is the wonder and the majesty of this king, the hem of whose robe fills this temple. The picture of God's holiness, if there's one word that Isaiah would use to describe this king, it's holy. This is the picture that he is left with and it's the word that, that he takes with him through the entire book. He write, has all these writings in the Old Testament through this book which takes his name, Isaiah. Um, and this is he characteristically describes God, the Holy One of Israel. It's made such an impression on him. It's so redirected the course of his life, this encounter with God, that that becomes the way that he characteristically refers to God. Um, the word holy is used more in just this one book, Isaiah, than in the rest of the Old Testament altogether. Such is the impression that God's holiness makes on him when he encounters God. Actually, holiness is the only thing in the Old Testament that needs to be cubed in order to be adequately described. Such is the, is the enormity of the holiness of God. Um, now, I said that we would define this. What is holiness? When I think about how we use that word today, it kind of seems like a bit of a, um, an old-fashioned word. I just think of people being holier than thou, which is you know, a bit of a sarcastic way that we say someone's a bit self-righteous or thinks they're a little bit better than other people. Um, when it comes to God, though, his holiness, it, when it's used here, it suggests a brightness like the sun. There's a brightness um, that can't be looked upon with naked eyes. And there's a separateness. It's something different, something completely so above and beyond and separate um, to who we are, so unapproachable, that, that, that when Isaiah comes to God, God is so far distinguished from Isaiah, he's so different um, that he, all he can say is holy, he's so pure and different. And what happens for Isaiah when he encounters this God of holiness is that he becomes so aware of his shortcomings in face of this brightness and distinguishedness of God. Um, he becomes aware of how separate he is from this perfect God um, because of his shortcomings, that he can't go near him because of his shortcomings. Um, he becomes in, you know, when you um, have that experience where you're so humbled by greatness, you might go to a concert and hear this amazing pianist and you thought you were pretty good and then you realise, actually, in the face of greatness, I'm not. Or you go to, I don't know where this picture is, let's say it's the Grand Canyon, you go to the Grand Canyon and you think, oh wow, okay, I thought the Blue Mountains were good. All right, okay. And you just feel a little bit humbled in the face of greatness. It's a little bit like that. That's the experience that Isaiah is having. He's so humbled by the, the holiness and the majesty of God that he sees his shortcomings in a new and fresh way that he otherwise wasn't aware of. He wasn't aware because he was in the midst of these people um, who were hardened to God, who weren't responsive to God. He didn't realise that he was, for example, maybe caught up in gossip. He didn't realise that he was caught up in pride. He didn't realise that he was caught up in greed because it was the sea that he was swimming in. When he comes and has an encounter with this living, holy God, all of a sudden, who is so separate to him, who is so brighter and beyond, he sees himself for how he really is. Um, and he is humbled. And so holy is God that he actually can't be in his presence and survive. 
He cries out in verse 5, Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's a little bit like this. It's, it's when you go down to the beach on, say, a Sunday afternoon, you go down to Balmoral, have a swim, you're in your swimmers, you've got your towel and your thongs on. And um, you don't, yeah, that's just normal, right? Because you're at the beach, everyone's in their swimmers with the towel and their thongs. It's just completely normal. But if you were then to walk straight out of there and go into the city to walk into a fancy restaurant, say like Aria, there you are and your swimmers and your towel and your cosy and your, and your wet hair and your thongs. They're not going to let you in, are they? It's not, it's not quite right. You don't just waltz into a fancy restaurant in your cosy and your towel and your thongs and covered in sand. Uh, the two just don't mix. And that's how I like to think about it. With, it's, not, it's an imperfect metaphor, but that's how I like to think about it with Isaiah trying to approach God um, within his shortcomings and his sin. He didn't recognise it when he was at the beach because he's just with everybody else who's the same. It's it seems fine, but then you take, him, take yourself out of that context and he, and he puts himself in the context of encountering God and he sees himself for how he is, dirty, covered in sand, not appropriately dressed to be approaching majesty. And he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. And in response, one of the seraphs, um, by the will and the presence of God, takes a coal from the altar the altar being the place of salvation. And he presses it to Isaiah's lips, which he has just acknowledged to be unclean. And he purifies him to open up this new experience of God, a new relationship with God, a new experience of life where he is both restored to relationship with God and is able to be set on a new course, a new trajectory in his life where he can participate in the purposes of God. And as soon as he is cleansed, as soon as he is made right with God, verse 8, he op- he's opened up to be able to hear the voice of God, to be, to be free in relationship with God. And we hear this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He signs a blank check because of how he sees himself in relation to God and the, how humbled he is by the majesty of God. He puts his hand up to be involved in the purposes of God without even knowing yet what the details of that is. And we're going to get to the details in a little bit, but first of all, as I said, I just want to draw out three things of what we can learn about this encounter between Isaiah and God, of what this means for Isaiah's life um, and what it can mean for our lives um, in giving God such deep allegiance that we would say, God, go, I'll go where you want me to go um, and I'll do what you want me to do, even if I don't know the exact details of what that means. The first thing is Isaiah recognises and acknowledges his inadequacy. It's that humbling experience of being an amazing concert or looking at the Grand Canyon or looking at an amazing piece of art. He recognises his his inadequacy. He knows that he's trying to get into a fancy restaurant covered in sand wearing his cosy. He recognises that God is holy and that he is inadequate and unclean before him. And he confesses it to God. And his response to the vision, as we've seen, is this, Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah can't be in the presence of a perfect, pure and holy God because of his shortcomings and the guilt that accompanies them, just like you can't be in a fancy restaurant in your swimmers. 
But you know, there's a twist here. It's not that God is holy and separate and doesn't want anything to do with Isaiah. This God, while God's people, the Israelites, um, had so turned their hearts from God um, that their characters have become careless and rejecting and unresponsive. Um, God doesn't want to be separate from Isaiah. He doesn't want to be separate from his people. Um, it's not his desire. His desire is that he has a people who are holy as, his, as he is holy. In fact, that was his first command to his people when they first became his people. He said, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart. Be holy as I'm holy. Um, and what we see is that actually God goes to incredible lengths to clean his people, to wash the sand off them so they can come in and dine with him. And, and did you notice that even though Isaiah is so self-conscious of his own shortcomings, he's so self-conscious of his own uncleanness before God, that he, and he's also self-conscious of the, of the shortcomings of the people he's a part of, the sea he's swimming in, the whole beach he's been comfortable in. That, but he first takes responsibility for his own uncleanness. He encounters this for himself before he worries about anybody else by first encountering God. You don't feel awkward in your swimmers at the beach, but you do when you go to a restaurant. It's the new context, it's a new encounter that brings that self-revelation and that self-clarity. Now let's be honest, recognising and acknowledging your own inadequacy, particularly for us in Sydney and on the lower North Shore, uh, is uncomfortable at the very least, isn't it? Uh, all the messages that we receive through the media and our world and our friends is, you can do it, just do it, you're enough. Um, all those kinds of messages, we think that we should be able to do it on our own, that we're enough in and of ourselves. Um, but the message here is that actually, when, it, when we come face to face with God and who He is, there's an inadequacy for us to be with him unless he makes us right. And he wants to. But the first step is for us to acknowledge it. We don't want to be humbled. But we need to be if we're going to be able to step into a new and fresh and vibrant and exciting relationship with this God of the universe. It's only in gazing on God long enough that we have that revelation, that we have that experience. What can that look like for our lives? It means, it means stopping once in a while to think on God, to think on Jesus, to look at creation and consider how God reveals himself in that. It means thinking on passages in the Bible, meditating on scripture. And when I was reflecting on this, a verse that came to my mind is from Ecclesiastes, another book in the Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 2, and it says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Then come to God, first of all, to listen and be awed by his majesty. Come and sit. Don't feel like you need to say anything. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Be willing to be humbled by his majesty and stop long enough to be awed and to be humbled, even though we don't necessarily want that experience because it cuts across the grain of everything that we know. Firstly, Isaiah recognises and acknowledges his inadequacy before God. That's like the gateway into this encounter. Uh, this, it's the gateway into what makes this encounter life-changing for him. What else makes it life-changing? Secondly, and more quickly, God responds to Isaiah's confession by cleansing and restoring him to, rela to relationship with God. 
He brings him into his purposes. Um, We see this in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When it says your sin atoned for, it's basically the debt that you had accumulated through your shortcomings. It's been covered. It's been paid for. It's a judicial, it's judicial language there. It's legal language. Uh, the debt that you owed has been cancelled. It's been paid for. And God brings him into his purposes. We see here again that God is holy, but he's also redeemer. He's not a God who stands far off and separate and bright and is unapproachable and who wants to remain separate. He wants to be one. His whole game in life is restoring a people who are separated because of sin and shortcoming to him to be in relationship. Um, And he is on a mission to restore all things to himself, us and others and our whole world. He's the one who makes a way for that to happen. Do you know God is so eager for him and Isaiah to be right with each other that he doesn't wait. He doesn't, Isaiah doesn't, he's not sort of passive aggressive and manipulative. You know, some people you might apologize to and then they'll just, oh, let me think about it. And then they'll just sit there and wait and you'll make phone calls and they don't get back to you and then they sort of sit on it and make you dwell and wonder if they're going to forgive you. God is not like that. As soon as Isaiah recognizes and acknowledges his guilt before God, his shortcomings, uh, God straight away, straight away removes it and restores relationship. God doesn't hesitate. I think that sometimes in life we can think, I've, I've sort of racked up this, this debt before God. I've done so many things wrong. If I were to apologise, it's going to take God such a long time to forgive me. It's going to, he's not, if he ever will at all. But no, no matter what the shortcoming, no matter what the sin, no matter what the guilt, no matter which way our heart has turned away from God and towards something else, no matter what else it is, God forgives immediately. Immediately, as soon as the confession is off our lips, God has forgiven us and wiped it away. Isn't that amazing? He's so good like that. It's part of his holiness that he's so separate from us, that he's, that's the, he's, he's so wonderful and that we're not often like that. We often make people suffer, whereas God is like, great, okay, I, I, my main game is that we are together, that we're in relationship. I will forgive you immediately. The method seems kind of weird for us that the seraph takes a live coal from the altar, um, the place of salvation, as I said, to touch his unclean lips, to purify them and make them whole. Um, But that's the price required to cover over the debt. The live coal represents fire, which was in the Old Testament was kind of an image of the wrath of God. And there was something about the wrath of God uh, that was required to purify and to to purify and to cleanse Isaiah of his sin. Um, Just as Isaiah encountered God's eagerness to be in relationship with him, so can each of you. That God is so eager to be in relationship with you that no matter how far you think you've fallen from him, no matter what you think you've done wrong, no matter how guilty you feel, um, he wants to be in relationship with you and he has made a way. And he doesn't make you wait. He won't wait. As soon as that confession is off your lips, God, I've fallen short. He's forgiven you. He wants relationship with you. But it doesn't stop there. God always acts with purpose. And so in Isaiah confessing his shortcoming and in God restoring him to relationship with him, he does that in a purpose. And he saves Isaiah, if you will, into the, into the purposes of God. He saves him to relationship with God and the purposes of God. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. 
Are you seeing now how this encounter with God has shaped Isaiah to be so willing to sign a blank check? How life-changing this encounter with God has been for him that he willingly puts up his hand and says, I'll go, I'll do it. Don't know what it is, but I'll do it. I will go for you. The immediate effect of his cleansing is that he hears this commission from God. He hears God's voice. He's now free to speak with God because he has been relationally reconciled to him. He receives the opposite of what he deserves. That's what we call grace. Into relationship with God and to be sent out to partner in God, with God's purposes in the world. You know, I think that sometimes we want to be part of what God is doing, uh, but we don't want the first bit, which is the reconciliation and the relationship with God. I don't know whether that's because we don't want the humbling, the humbling encounter. We don't want to really see how we truly are in light of God because um, we, don't, we want to think that we're really important in, our, in and of ourselves outside of relationship with God. Um, but I think sometimes we want to jump ahead to the mission that God sends us on because we might get some kudos from that. We might get some value from that. And we skip the first piece of relationship with God. And I want to make it clear this morning that when God saves us to himself, it's first and foremost to relationship with him. And then from that place, from an encounter with him, he sends us out to participate with him in the world. And same with Isaiah. He first has this encounter with God before God moves through him. God has designed us to be rivers and not reservoirs. He's designed us to be blessed, to be a blessing. Um, so first of all, we have to come to him to have relationship with him. And then from that place, he sends us out to minister to others. You see in Isaiah here, he's had this encounter with God. He's had his entire life changed, the whole course of his life. First of all, by recognising and acknowledging his inadequacy before God in light of who he has seen God to be. Secondly, he's been cleansed and restored to relationship with God. And thirdly, this has opened up a whole new experience of God, of life with God, where he gets, gets to be not only in relationship with him first and foremost, but then from there to be part of his purposes in this world. It's pretty amazing, pretty incredible that God would frame up our entire experience of life in that way. And so what does he do, Isaiah? He signs a blank check because of how moving this experience has been for him. Um, he signs a blank check. You know, for us, we, we sit on the other side of Jesus. We have the benefit of the writings of the New Testament that frame up what God is doing in this world in bringing uh, justice and healing and beauty and reconciliation through Jesus who died on the cross for us. Isaiah was before that. He didn't have the detail. He didn't have the footnotes as much. All he had was this encounter, life-changing personal encounter with God, a personal experience, and from there said, yes, because of how that has changed him, yes, I will go, send me. It's important, that, it's important to note that Isaiah here is serving God and not the mission. You know how Sam talked last week about it's important that we, that we obey God and not the reason for our suffering? It's kind of similar here. We, it's, it's important that we, relationship comes first, so that we're serving God first and not the mission that he sends us on, not what we might get out of it, not what it's going to be, but serving God. And the reason, one of the reasons that was so important for Isaiah is this is what his mission was. As soon as he says, send me, this is what God gives him to do from verse 9. Go and tell this people, be, this is the Israelite people, God's people. 
Go and be go and tell these people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of these people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. His mission is to share the word of God with this newfound clarity. Uh, God knows that the parts of the people are not going to respond to it. And he's got, his, his mission is to share the word of God to this people with a new clarity that they're going to reject God's word and reject God's word. And with each rejection become harder and harder in their hearts um, so that they completely turn away from God. That is a very strange commissioning to be receiving from God. And if Isaiah had known that's what he was signing up for, I don't know if he would have said yes. He might have said yes. But it's why it's so important that he is doing this for who God is. Now, why is this? Why is this the way that God is setting setting this up? What is God doing in sending Isaiah on this mission to make sure that his people won't respond to him when God wants his people to respond to him? doesn't seem to make very much sense. This is it. The sin and the brokenness of his people, the uncleanness of his people ran so deep that an even deeper cut from the surgeon was required to bring a deeper healing. They were so deeply broken that the surgeon, God, had to make a a really, really deep cut in order to bring a deep enough healing. What that meant is that things had to get worse for God's people. Their ears and their eyes and their hearts didn't work. They weren't able to respond to God's word when they heard it. And so what happens is they ended up getting kicked out of their own home of, of Jerusalem, which was known as the exile, and they become this destroyed people. They're completely obliterated. This is this deep cut of the surgeon's knife. But, you know, destruction is never God's last word. At the very end of this passage, Isaiah asks how long, and God says, until my people are completely destroyed and, and exiled. And at the end of that, God says, here's his word of hope at the end. But as the terebinth and oak, the trees, leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Even though God's people have been kicked out of their land, imagine a forest cut down, there's a stump and from that stump will grow new hope. Even though there's a deep surgeon's cut incision, what there's going to be a deeper healing because of that and there's a little seed of hope from the stump of a tree that has been felled. The hope of what God has been wanting to achieve all along is only possible by this destruction, by this deep cut, in order to reconcile his people to himself once and for all. Where does that hope come from? Where does that hope spring up once all hope is lost from the stump of that tree? It springs up in the form of God himself, sent to earth in the form of his son, Hundreds of years later, Jesus arrives on the scene to show us that the depth of human brokenness was so deep that it required God himself to step in to fix it. God himself to step in to bring healing. You know, these people didn't listen to Isaiah, but maybe they'd listen to God's son. Or maybe they'd kill him, which we know they did. 
like Isaiah before him, Jesus didn't come for what the mission was because he thought he'd get something out of it. Jesus came for the love of his Father, for who his, who his God was, who his Father was, who he had encountered for all eternity, lived with in heaven for all eternity because of who his Father was. He came to earth, was sent by his Father to die on a cross, to cancel the debt like the... Um, like the coal from the altar, to cancel the debt of our uncleanness before God, to wash the sand off us, give us new clothes to get us into the restaurant, to be with him, to dine with him. So that as we trust in him, we might be reconciled to God and enjoy a relationship with him in that restaurant, dining with him forever. It's in looking in Jesus on the cross as he wipes out our debt and in his resurrection that we have our Isaiah moment, church. This is our Isaiah encounter. This is our Isaiah moment as we look at our Saviour Jesus on the cross. As we look on him, we see the depth of our sin in the pain that we caused him, the depth of our hearts that have wandered away from him. We also see the, the depth of his love for us, that he would do that to bring us home, that he would go to that length to be in relationship with us. We also see the means by which he heals us, and we see an invitation to partner with him as he sets all things right in this world. And so as we acknowledge our uncleanness and receive his forgiveness through Jesus, he gives us our commission as he gave one to Isaiah. Can you guess what it might be? He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our job is not to convert people, to, to restore people. Only God can do that. Our job is simply to obey him because of who he is and what we see in him in Jesus and to go faithfully go in the power of his spirit to help people see and hear as God awakens them to see and hear that they too might turn and be restored to relationship with him and also be swept up into his marvelous world-changing purposes. You now Isaiah's encounter with God is the story of every Christian. It's the story of every person who's placed their hope in Jesus. It's how you became a Christian, isn't it? You recognized and acknowledged your inadequacy before God. You received his forgiveness and you got restored into a fresh new life in him. My question for you this morning, Christian, is this. How real is that saving encounter to you today? How much does that set, your, set the course of your life in a new trajectory? How much does that change your world do you need to spend some time this morning gazing on Jesus on the cross to see the lengths that he went to to restore us back to relationship with God because how deeply he wants that and how deeply he loves you and longs to be restored to you? Would you be willing to sign a blank check for your king saying, Lord, here am I, send me? I think that's a bit of a litmus test for us this morning. If not, why not? Do you need to spend a bit more time looking upon your king? 
If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you haven't been through that moment of recognising and acknowledging your own inadequacy before God and receiving his forgiveness and being birthed into a whole new life in him, the invitation is there for you this morning. Would you consider responding to him? Uh, You'll know it. If he's awakening you to see and hear this message of his, you'll know that within you. We're going to have some time for you to come come up the back and um, come up to one of the prayer team and we would love to pray with you through that afterwards. If you know, have you have a sense within you that God is awakening this in you? Uh, If not, would you consider this message? Would you think upon it? Would you think about what this might mean uh, for your life? We have a God who loves all people, whether we've responded to him or not. Um, He is a God who every day of our lives is there for us um, to be humbled by, to see who we truly are in the light of who he truly is, uh, to be forgiven, to be clean, to be welcomed into that restaurant with new clothes, uh, to dine with him together as a community uh, for all time. Let's pray. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.